Hey kids, what time is it? Time for another episode of Brio TV, the podcast. I'm your host, Bill Brio. Today's show is brought to you by three terrific sponsors, Hollywood Suite, Super Channel, and CTV. Now, my guest is Emmy Award-winning actor who starred for 11 seasons as Will Truman on the must-see NBC sitcom Will & Grace. You also know him from TV dramas, excellent TV dramas, Perception and Travelers, and from Broadway productions such as The Music Man, and also just he's a really good guy from Scarborough, Ontario. Please welcome Eric McCormick. Eric, great to see you. Thank you, Bill. That was was a very kind intro. Well, I'm happy to uh, to do that. Well, we've we've talked a few times over the years. I've always been always found you to be very accommodating and generous, and so thank you again for doing this today. Uh, pleasure. Uh, now, first of all, um, well, let me ask you this one right out of get this right out of the way. It, it must be true because it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, is it true that your son Finnegan is named after? Mr. Dressup's puppet character. Uh, it is absolutely 100% true. Um, in fact, I was, I was actually just going to mention Mr. Dressup. It's very strange because I was just in Toronto and uh, uh, some wonderful people are making a documentary about Mr. Dressup. I've heard that, and, yeah. Uh, and I, one of the things I said, they asked me to be one of the many uh, fawning, talking heads on it. And so one of the things I said was, you know, Americans are always fascinated. Why are Canadians so nice, so polite. I, and I, I've come to the conclusion it's because we all watched Mr. Dress Up. <laughs> I, think, I think besides being, he was in completely, absolutely my first influence uh, as an actor, for sure. There's no question that, uh, that at the age of four, I wasn't staring at that screen going, uh, how does he, he just pulls things out of it. Mom, I need a tickle trunk. <laughs> you know, and I and I got one. And it was you know filled with my dad's old dress shirts or whatever. But it was That's cool. It was the beginning of I, I can be anything, and it's just and it's as simple as putting on a costume or a hat. So he was completely influential. But also those two characters, Casey and Finnegan. I mean, when my wife and I finally got pregnant and throwing names back and forth, and I don't know if she said it or if I said it, but. The moment it came out of our mouths, it was like, yeah, if it's a boy, it's Finnegan. Well, there's a marriage made in heaven, Eric. Huh. Both of you agreed instantly on that name. That yeah. is awesome. Um, I'm I'm older than you are, and I remember this show starting as Butternut Square with uh, right. Dress Up. Yeah. About 65, I think. Way back. And uh, before that, I the guy I was raised by was uh, the Friendly Giant. Of course, and, yeah. There was something very, man, there was a powerful show. These people who did these things, they spoke right at you like they were Walter Cronkite. You know, they were just broadcasters, but so intimate and so respectful. Uh, even as a child, you just really wanted to hang with people who were so nice, right? Right. And also, we didn't have other choices. I mean, kids these days, are a screen, various sizes of screens are thrust in front of them when they're in their stroller. You know, we had, if our mothers were to get anything done in the morning, they were going to plop us down in front of the friendly giant, then Shea Helene. Right, right. 
It's always like the vegetable portion, right? It's like, oh, now i got to watch a French show for 15 minutes. And then the full half hour of Mr. Dress-Up. But, I mean, without that, what did, what did we have until, until cartoons on Saturday morning? It was uh, that and a bunch of shows from Buffalo with Commander Tom yeah. and oh, uh, <laughs> those guys, right? right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, who were his puppets? Mr. Beeper? Yeah, very good, yeah. Dust Mop and... Uh, yeah, and he had, he had Promo the Robot, right? That was Rocket Ship 7. Oh, that was Rocket Ship 7 with Dave... Dave uh, Thomas. Dave, Dave Thomas. Thomas. Very good. You know who Dave Thomas is? No. David Boreana's father. Oh, really? Yeah, from Bones, yeah, and from... Uh, he's now on SEAL Team, but yeah, that's his dad. He's in Philadelphia. Oh, and, that's crazy. Uh, I can still picture him. Yeah, he's he's uh, still he lives in Philadelphia, and uh, yeah, that show was on for like twenty one years. But these shows existed in a universe where there was no videotape. Um, uh, that show was on so many years, and about five minutes of it exists now. Like it's really wow. shocking. Yeah, but the good thing is CBC with Mister Dress Up, they have it all, and so you're able to do this documentary and contribute to it. But people can see what we were excited about, which is great. And, and obviously how innocent we were. Yeah, yeah I think so. It's yeah. like it not, wasn't ever that exciting. It didn't have to be. Right. It, it moved slow. It was gentle. Yeah. Uh, like Mr. Rogers, obviously, but, um, but it was very much for us. Yeah, no, it really was. Um, how, how has your summer been otherwise? Um, it was actually great. I, I've actually spent a lot of time in uh, Toronto. I'm in Los Angeles right now, but... Um, Shot a couple of things in Toronto, one before the uh, the new year came and one <clears throat> in the spring. And then I went back to Toronto to, sh- to direct an episode of Murdoch. Murdoch. Murdoch Mysteries. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. How did that go? It went great. It was really fun. It was uh, my particular episode is Murder in a Mennonite's Village. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I split this block of two episodes with a dear friend of mine, Jason Furukawa, who's uh, yeah. a terrific director. And I said, what's your episode about? He says, motorcycles. <laughs> it's like, there's like races and there's motorcycle chases. And I say, hey, you got motorcycles. I got Mennonites. <laughs> um, but I actually loved it. I got to hire a few actors that I really adore. Um, and, and there was a gentleness to the, to the show, to the particular episode that I really liked in terms yeah. of movie camera and everything but there was also just a couple of great scenes for for yannick and uh and the other actors it was uh, it was fun and uh, you would be working with uh, peter mitchell i assume we i saw peter a little bit yeah but he was actually in newfoundland for most of oh, it doing hudson and rex yeah so i got to meet him for a second uh, he's one of my favorite uh, my only really good pete, pete mitchell story because he's been running the show forever yeah and uh People listening might not know this, that when a new director comes on a show like that, there's usually in the first couple of days of pre-production, something called a tone meeting, where you've already been dealing with props and this and that. You've been on location to choose your your sets, but you have to sit down with the guy that runs the show or the woman that runs the show, and they just give you a little sense of maybe you haven't seen the show yet, but here's the tone of it. Here's the feel of it. I think this scene needs to be this and that. And, of course, we've all seen Murdoch Mysteries for 15 years. So I said, I'd already done three or four days of of it, and Pete comes in. It's the first time we were really meeting, and he plops in the chair across from me, stares at me, and says, "Uh, 
I never know what to say in these meetings. You know what the tone of the show is. And I said, yeah, I think I got the tone of the show. And he said, good. All right, we're done. And he he got up and left. It's the shortest tone meeting of all time. Well, one of the one of the great gifts that Peter Mitchell has, I think, is that he, he and if you watch Murdoch Mysteries, you get this sense he's happy to have you set the tone. Like the, the tone changes on that show, right? And That's it right. It's more variety. It's probably why it's been on so long. I think so, and I think he, you know, some shows obviously there is more than just a tone. There is a look. There is a template that you have to stick to. Uh, you know, I think of these more action-y shows on, on big networks and NCIS or whatever. You can't mess around with that, uh, with that plan too much. But on that one, they really want you to bring whatever you can do in, in 12 hours or less. Uh, that's what they want. That's great. Um, when you were coming up in Canada and, and acting on shows, um, were you, did you ever, uh, were you ever in a room with Yannick Besson lining up for the same part? We actually, it's funny you brought that up because he, uh, I was at a dinner with him uh, during TIFF just a few weeks ago. And nice. he, uh, he had memories of a couple of times that we crossed paths. And I, I didn't remember because uh, when I was in Toronto for the first sort of 10 years of my career through my twenties, I was mostly doing theater. I had very few television yeah. auditions. Stratford. Yeah. I was all, I was five years at Stratford. And, and when I wasn't at Stratford, I was uh, in the regional theaters in uh, Alberta or New Brunswick um, and, and Winnipeg a few winters. So, so when I finally started to audition, I was probably 28 when I finally got television work and I'm sure we crossed paths at the CBC a couple of times, but I, I don't remember knowing him. Uh, well, you, you, so both, you both played cowboys early on on series, right? What was his? His was uh, never too late for a cowboy, or never too. <laughs> what was it called? It wasn't that. That wasn't the name. That was, of that's it. a por- that's a porn film, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he was he he was on a western for a couple of years. You were in the Lonesome Dove, the series, Lonesome wasn't Dove? it? Yeah, and that was. So I that was sort of the the beginning of that. I in ninety two I moved to Vancouver because it was just I'd done one episode of ENG and one episode of Street Legal and that was kind of hit. Like my agents were like, I don't know, there's nothing else going on at the moment, but there's a lot going on in Vancouver. So yeah. try your luck, and that's why that move happened. But and two years later, the role I got, um, which actually shot in Alberta, was was Lonesome Dove for two seasons. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, I read one of your early credits. It, it, it says is uh, hanging in, which was a, a comedy on CBC. People might remember. Was that a three camera show, or was that? Uh, do you remember? Was there a studio audience for it? It was a three cam. Was not a studio audience. It was a three camera show that um, was. I mean, Canada's not known for its. No. It is. We, we didn't really have. Any and the few we had, this here's a name for you. Remember the trouble with Tracy? And the oh lights? yeah, yeah. They, they were, these shows cost a dollar fifty. They had sort of bad lighting and bad sets, and hanging in was sort of part of that yeah. uh, tradition. But a lot of people passed through there as as guest stars. I think when I did it, Fiona Reed was the lead. Wow. Uh, and I think before her, I can't remember who was the lead, but it was it was, it was supposed to be with social workers. And, right. But yeah, that that really was my first television credit, and it was. Uh, in, in all ways, the the, the traditional sort of uh, imitation American sitcom. There was a laugh track they put in after the fact, and uh, and the lighting was so bright. And I had terrible. I was supposed to be playing a, a 
child star who had uh, grown up and become homeless. And, and I remember the costume they found, they put together for me as a homeless person. Uh, so I'm, it's, what year is this? 89, 90? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I might as well have been dressed like a hobo from the 40s. You know, it was right. like <laughs> riding the rails. So, um, yes, it, not, not an auspicious uh, debut. Well, you survived hanging in. That's all right. Uh, and went on to many, many great things. Um, now, uh, you mentioned you were in Toronto to shoot, uh, to direct an episode of Murdoch Mysteries. But prior to that, I believe um, you were here to shoot a series, right? Uh, yes, which I think that's the last time I saw you. Yeah. Um, um, it's a series I was not aware of at all, e- even though it, this was season five of it. Uh, it's made for an American network down here <clears throat> called the Shutter Network, which right. is a, a, a horror and and suspense and some gore and um but this entire s- series has been shot in Toronto with virtually the same cast, which is fascinating because they don't play the same characters season to season. It's like a company of actors and the, the writers come up with a new sort of eight, six, eight episode arc of murder of, of people getting murdered, kind of a, a gory Agatha Christie every yeah. season. But this season takes place for the first time ever in another period. It's 1910. And I, I got to play, I, I literally, after 10 pages, I called my agent and said, I don't, I'm doing this. Uh, he's a ruthless son of a bitch that has killed. He's not the killer. He's, he's, he's being stalked by whoever the killer is, but he is just uh, this sort of Rupert Murdoch meets, I, I, I just meets uh, Jack the Ripper in some ways. He's just, um, he's wonderful. He was so wonderful to play. And it's such a vicious uh, show, so well written, and uh, I had a great time. Slasher is he? It is Slasher Ripper? I think they got the fifth season. Yeah, so that which is a confusing, yeah, confusing name. Um, but uh, yes, I, I think there's other names that might have made it clearer what what this season is. But uh, it's set in the 1800s, so isn't it? It's a historical. I think it's 1910. Okay, uh, I yeah. could be wrong about that. No, it's a, it takes place in nineteen ten, but then there's, then there's flashbacks to eighteen ninety eight. That's right. Uh, is, is he sort of a Dexter? Is it? Is there sort of elements of that that the people being targeted are bad guys who should be yes, killed by very, somebody? Okay, very much. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I can't speak for previous seasons, but certainly in this one, all of us that are being stalked know we figure out pretty quickly why, what, what, what we all have in common, what we did in the past. So it's. Uh, well, wow. it, it's a big departure for you. Are, are, were, were you just dying to play something in, in, in this genre that is a, a guy who was more uh, almost a bad guy? Was it something that was that part of the appeal? I, I, you know, I get to play bad guys once in a while, which is really fun. Um, and it uh, comes a little too naturally to me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but the, there's different kinds of bad guys, right? There's There's, there's that corporate bad guy. Yeah. Um, which I can I can do very easily. Um, even the, the character on Lonesome Dove was sort of your classic snidely whiplash uh, bad guy with a heart of gold. But this guy just had, there's nothing about him um, that is lovable, except he falls, he falls in love with a much younger woman and basically kidnaps her and takes her as, as a wife almost against her will. And the only thing that redeems him is that you really, you realize he really is in love with her. 
Um, but other than that, he's he's irredeemable. So yeah, I, I love doing that. I um once in a while. I like to, I just like to mix it up. I mean, it goes back to Mr. Dress Up. It's like I don't, I don't want to take the same costume out of the, the trunk. Isn't <laughs> that great? Yeah, perfect. That's cool. We'll be right back with Eric McCormick right after this short message. once again for a Hollywood Sweet Minute with Emily Gagne. Emily, what do you have streaming for us this month? Oh, well, in September, it's all about movie soundtracks. So we're doing music and movies, you know, premieres of movies like The Harder They Come, Fun in Acapulco for the fans of Elvis that just <laughs> can't get enough. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of Baz Luhrmann, also the film uh, Strictly Ballroom. I don't know if you've seen that one. I have. I love that film. Yeah, it's great. But there's a Mamma Mia for fans of that, Nashville, Guys and Dolls, any like music-centric movies you can think of, we've got them in September. Perfect. What else you got? Uh, and then we're really excited to uh, be sort of part of National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. And we're hosting the Canadian broadcast premiere of The Long Ride Home, which is a documentary about a group of Indigenous people that took a horseback ride across the prairies to raise awareness for Indigenous issues. Uh, it's a really compelling and really inspiring film, and we really hope you'll join us on September 30th for it. All right. That's The Long Ride Home, part of the September headlines at Hollywood Suite. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Bill. And here he is again, Eric McCormick. Well, uh, I've been listening to some podcasts lately. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, do, you, are there, do you have favorites? Do you listen to podcasts? Or I am some? not really a podcast guy, though um, I am doing one. Uh, at the moment that I'm excited about. It just got announced in the trades the other day. Oh, great. Um, it is uh, my dear friend, Stephen Weber, who's a wonderful actor, was on yeah. the show. Wings. Wings, Wings of course, yeah. And, uh, Stephen and I have, for many, we've dined out together for 20 years. And over the last five or six, we started to dine with sort of the same group of men, and it would build, and it was it would build. We'd call ourselves... The CADs, the Canadian, another, I mean, the, the character actors dining society. <laughs> and, and we just, we just, we just eat and drink maybe once every two months or something. But, um, this is a great group of guys, Lawrence Fishburne and, and Kevin Pollock and Jason wow. Alexander. It's, it's a tremendous, uh, Brian Cranston joins us now. Uh. And so we decided to, Sean Hayes, <clears throat> who has got the most successful uh, podcast in the world at the moment, uh, came to me and said, what do you want to do? Something podcasty. I said, Stephen and I should do one where we have dinner with some people. So we've done it with six or seven episodes. They're, they'll start airing, I think, in the new year. But it's just Stephen and I, and the first episode is LeVar Burton and uh, Richard Kind. And the, and it's just us eating Oh, my lunch. God. What a, I want to hear that right now. Those are I two, know. It's two really, great guys. Yeah. Hour of just, and all we do is just talk as if we just finished a, a show on Broadway and we were going to have a bite. That's um, fantastic. What a great so, idea. Yeah. Yeah. And we've did, uh, we've had some really good, we just did uh, last week was, uh, was Noah Wiley and Rob Morrow. And, uh, wow. it was just been really fun. 
Uh, good for you. That's a great idea. Well, I, I've been listening to uh, uh, several uh, in the last few years, and the one, mm-hmm. of course, you mentioned with Sean Hayes, Smartless, yeah. and uh, Conan O'Brien's got a great one. But uh, James Burroughs has been making the rounds promoting his new I book, and uh, he was a guest on both those shows. I can't remember which one, but he uh, declared, and of course, I'm sure people listening know Jim Burroughs, but he's uh, the director of television for comedy of the last 40, 45 years. Yeah. 45 years. Um, but he singled out your show as the greatest cast of a sitcom he's ever directed. And, you know, he's directed Cheers and Friends and yeah. Yeah. going all the way back. So that's that's quite a compliment. He's, um, I mean, he's the fifth Beatle for us you know right right uh, he directed every single episode he directed the the pilot he directed the the little video that we made for hillary clinton that got us back into and and created the reboot yeah Um, he's always been part of the show and um there's a lot of shows taxi uh cheers where he directed most every episode but this was the first uh, one that he was always always there incredible and every year he'd sort of, he'd do a pilot or two for some other show and he'd always sort of threaten to be like, well, I'm not sure. I don't know what I'm going to do next season. I'll, I'll let you know. And then his wife would always kind of look, sort of put her hand over her face and go, geez, he, of course he's coming back. He's never been happier. Right. And it was, it was just one of those shows where uh, it was just so brilliantly written and, and that we would laugh all week long. And if you, if you didn't laugh, you knew that joke had to go because we were laughing constantly. So yeah. it was, um, it was a, a great joy to, to know that, that uh, we could rely on Jimmy to not just be Jimmy Burroughs, but also his, his laugh. He's not someone that laughs at things. Just sometimes directors of sitcoms will sort of fill in the laugh where I think the audience is going to laugh and, Right, the actors. It doesn't help us out if if, if it's not really funny. Um, but uh, Jimmy's Jimmy would be the first to go. Oh, I don't. Know. I don't get that joke. That's not funny. <laughs> so he's a tough room. He's, he's a tough room. But if the material is good, he's the best room because right. you, you can hear on any episode of Will and Grace. I could easily point out Jimmy's laugh. It's uh, front and center. Well earned. Uh, yeah, there's stories about people and showrunners and directors whose laugh you can hear. On certain shows, uh, yeah. I don't know if it was the Dick Van Dyke show or Carl Reiner or different people like that. They would just, I think the uh, various ones, Night Court, the guy who was the producer of that show. Oh, you, is that right? Yeah. You could pick them out. Uh, when, when uh, having had that great experience with uh, Jim Burroughs, when you're directing, when you're directing something like Murdoch Mysteries or whatever, are there lessons that you learn from him that you apply to what you're doing as a director? Yeah, for sure. I, I took a lot away from Jimmy, and and from you, know, you take away from every director, <clears throat> good or bad. You know, um, there's certainly directors I had early on when I was doing guest star things down here in the states that I could tell were just it was a day job for them. It was they were just moving furniture around, and and I thought I must remember to care more or to encourage you know to connect with the writers more so that i'm not directing dialogue that i don't even like you know um i think that's the directors that i've loved the most gave a shit they do they were they were invested you know and jimmy was always that he uh, we would 
read the script of a of a Wednesday. Wednesday was usually our first day with the new scripts, and the network would be there, and, and we'd have lots of people laughing, and sometimes the scripts didn't work that well. Whatever it was, as soon as we were done, everybody had to go except for Jimmy and the writers. Mm. He would... It would give him the notes and the notes were, you know, he knew what was going to work and what didn't. It wasn't always right, but he certainly went with his gut because he cared. And, and I, that's something that stuck with me. I, I, even with Murdoch, I just, I would bring things up and say this, I think this scene could benefit from this and that. And that part's, that part's kind of fun because also with something like that, you, you know, it's Yannick's show. He's been on there for, uh, 15 years from the beginning. So it's a lens. So you can't just make decisions without, I, I know what it's like to be the lead of a show and have a, someone come in and think that they don't have to consult with you. Right. Like, wait, 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 slow down, slow down. Um, so, so yeah, I've, and I also remember another director. I can't remember his name. I think he was, he was either French or French Canadian. He directed a, my first series in Vancouver was called Street Justice. It was Carl Weathers and myself. As wow. 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 <laughs> yeah. uh, it was one of those Stephen Jay Cannell shows right. in the early 90s. And uh, and this I'd done maybe six, seven episodes by this point, and this director came in, and and I felt so uncomfortable about this one piece of a- action. I, I went to him and I said, look, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope it's okay if I say this. And he, I remember him saying, no, no, it's... Of course, you are the guardian of your character. And I went, oh, oh, I like that. Yeah. So I've always thought that. So I've, it, the few times I've got to direct, I don't want a steamroller over anybody's, over the work they've done for five episodes or five seasons, you know. Uh, and uh, did you start directing on Will and Grace? Was that where your first credits were? No, my first credit was on uh, a show I did for three years down here, here called Perception. Oh, yes, of course. You were uh, one of the producers as well, right? Yes, and um, with a wonderful guy named Ken Biller, who we're trying to partner up on something else at the moment, hmm. who created the show. And uh, Ken was the first one, uh, and then Brad Wright, who created Travelers, was the yep. second. Who Guys who really connected with me as, as sort of number one on the call sheet and, and thought of me as a partner rather than as someone whose trailer door they had to occasionally knock on. We, we were, we were connected. And so he said, you, you should direct, why aren't, why aren't you directing the show? You know, you know it better than anybody. And so he gave me my first crack at, at it. And, uh, and then I directed two of the travelers and then Murdoch. So it's really only been four things, but, um, I've always been nervous about the idea of doing a sh- another show, something like Murdoch, where it's like I'm not, I'm the new guy here. Right. Does anybody want a new guy? We wouldn't, have, <laughs> we wouldn't have wanted a new guy on on Will and Grace. We begged Jimmy. We wanted the continuity of that. Right. Right. But sometimes with a show, an um, an hour long show, a show that's been running a long time, the new blood is exactly what they want. Just something to stir the pot, and uh, and I think that's why. We all had such a, a good time on that one. I've heard it said when you're the lead, when you're uh, on a show, and then you're directing episodes, you discover rooms that you didn't even know existed on that set, or you know, like it's, suddenly you're thrown into a different, whole other world, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And somebody, somebody said, "Is it hard to direct yourself?" And I said, 
God, no. I, I, I agree with everything I said. <laughs> exactly. Um, when we last spoke, you were up here, uh, part of your summer in, in Toronto, and the Canadian Film Centre was uh, hosted a, a great uh, event with you, uh, yeah. and, and you told some great <clears throat> stories. I just want to revisit one or two of those because they're priceless. And uh, one of them is uh, connected to the fact that Will and Grace had probably the greatest guest starring list of any show ever i mean it was incredible the number of people who played bosses or parents or uh other people connected with the four main characters uh you told one about gene wilder who uh is somebody you didn't see very often on television uh yet he did a a story arc on will and grace if you if you wouldn't mind just maybe uh going over that again yeah oh uh you know, it, it got weird after by the eighth, by the eighth season. It was like the network was almost over. They were, they were, they, we had three, sometimes two or three big names every week. Uh, it just became the thing to do. So we, we got a little, we started to take it for granted. And then once in a while, someone would show up that just sort of, sort of made us realize how lucky we were. And Gene was one of them. Gene came in to play my Gregory Hines had played my boss for a couple of seasons. And when right. Gregory passed away, um, <clears throat> they started to figure out, okay, who else runs this law firm? Uh, eventually Willie Tomlin would come in, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. But they, we brought in Gene as the silent partner in the, in the firm. The firm was something, something in Stein. And, uh, he played this, uh, a very strange character. They wrote him strange. He played it. Gene Wilder strange. And so funny and such a gentle person. Um, but I got to, I, whenever there was a guest star, it's like, who gets to have the scenes? <laughs> who was it? Well, like when, when Madonna came on, it was all Megan and Madonna, but I got the Gene Wilder scenes uh, and I loved him so much. And I thought, I just, I want to know him, but he was, he was a little shy and hard to know. And I said, well, I want to, I want to make him laugh. So we had a scene in a Chinese restaurant where, I'm basically on behalf of the firm saying, sir, I, I know you're the silent partner, but you have to step up. We need you. We need to, your help in this case or whatever it was. I said, you know, you're, I mean, it's, you, it's something, something in Stein. You're Stein. He says, yes. Yes, I'm Stein. I said, say it, say it with like, say it with guts. I'm Stein. He said, I'm Stein. And then I stood up off script and said, your name is Frankenstein. <laughs> oh my God. He fell, he fell out of the booth. I got him to laugh so hard. And, uh, a great reference, of course, to young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. And, uh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and the great, the, the, the upshot of that story is because I never really saw him again. It was, I think that was virtually the last thing he ever did. And then, um, he started to be, uh, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he just stayed at home uh, in um, Connecticut, I think, and, and uh, we never saw him again. Uh-huh. Uh, and when he passed away, about a year after he passed away, my wife and I were invited to uh, a, a special memorial to him at the Writers Guild a year right. after. And we went up and we were going to get our tickets. And they said, oh, you're, you're not listed on that. You're, you're down at the friends and family entrance. So, okay. So I walked down to that. And, and his, uh, Gene's son, it was actually his nephew, but raised as his son, came out and said, oh, it's, it's so great you're here. I said, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. And he, I said, I'll take you to the green room. He ushered me into a, a small, small room where the only other two people were Alan Ladd Jr. and Mel Brooks. Oh, my God. 
And Mel's like, hey, like, hi, what am I doing here? And, and I turned and I said, what am I doing here? And his, uh, his son said, oh, he, oh, you don't know. Oh, my father loved you. My father called you that gentleman actor that I kiss. He said, wow, we, he was only there for a couple of episodes. He said, oh, I know, but Gene used to say, there's only three people who ever really made me laugh on screen that ever really broke me up. Uh, Dom DeLuise, Madeline Kahn, and that nice Eric from Will and Grace. <laughs> well, wow, that's pretty good company, Eric. I mean, it's kind of one of those stories that I, I'm happy to tell you, but you can't walk around with that story. And people kind of look at you like, yeah, sure. But um, I'd have it on a T-shirt, but okay. <laughs> but I was just one of those moments that I just thought, Jesus, and 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 the other wonderful thing is that my other favorite guest star in Will and Grace was uh, was Sidney Pollack, who played my father. Yeah, and uh, Blythe Danner is my mother. The two of them together were gold, and I couldn't believe my luck. The best television parents ever. But I found out after Sidney's death how much he loved our scenes together. His granddaughter told me this, and I was like, God, I wish I'd known these men better than just uh, you know in our scenes. Michael Douglas, another uh, another yes. actor who uh, was on your show, uh, a wonderful man. Yeah, uh, Debbie Reynolds. I mean, uh, Candace Bergen, quite quite impressive. Uh, I, had another, I had another Michael Douglas is my other favorite sort of outtake moment because I used to try to do outtakes on purpose to, right. to get people to laugh. That's kind of nervy. It's very nervy, but it's you know it's a live audience, so yeah. you want you want to keep them uh, connected and, and and having a great time and. So Michael was playing a, like a version of one of the, those characters he plays, a cop, tough, but gay, uh, secretly gay and coming on to Will. And there was a scene where I, I was supposed to sit down beside him. And um, I think my line as written was, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, 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 was, I always looked up to cops or I always thought cops were sexy or something like that. But I sat down beside him and I said, you know, when I was a kid, I... I used to jerk off watching the streets of San Francisco <laughs> and the audience goes bananas and my, he, Michael does not break. He just looks at me, stares at me sitting on the couch, very sort of man spread, just staring at me. I think 30 seconds of laughter. And as it died down, he said, you liked Carl Malden that much, did you? <laughs> oh, that's gold. That's awesome. gold. What awesome. an experience. That's great. Um, that live studio experience and the laughter and everything, it, it is such a fundamental part of uh, television for many of us. But it's rare now, Eric, you know, like it's done. Oh, yeah. It's, it's almost three, gone. Right. Well, well, why do you think that is, uh, that the this traditional studio audience camera show in, in a, such an American form uh, that it's just yeah. not really happening right now? Um, my theory is just that it, it's always involved a certain amount of, of innocence um, to, to, to oh. a studio audience or, or just watching uh, a show that has a studio audience. Um, and, and I think as time went by, you know, we got to, we got to Seinfeld and friends and, and Will and Grace. We were sort of at the height of, of that, but with, with that also came, uh, 30 Rock and and uh, Sex and the City to a degree, but I, when I think of 30 Rock, I think of a show where 
it was so ironic and and it was it, it wasn't wack it was very wacky in many ways but you didn't have an audience laughing at it the variety show by that point with the exception of saturday night live was virtually dead these things that were from a more innocent time yeah at least innocence on the part of the audience um things that it was just changing slowly but surely and and the more single camera comedies that came in that like the office uh like parks and rec that didn't require that it started to sound garish it never did doing it in front of an audience right now you know my my son for instance who's just now 20 doesn't really relate i know a lot of his friends are discovering the show friends but they're more often discovering the office they're discovering things that that don't feel pandery and and the sitcom by its very nature uh it, it panders. It, it says, we, we want you to laugh. We want you to hear other people laugh. And then, of course, the, the tragic thing that happened in the 60s, I still think of it as tragic, is, is the invention of the laugh track, right. which <clears throat> I have to explain at least once a week to someone that we <laughs> have a laugh track, that yeah. we had a live audience. But people, and even, that's why they started to, uh, yeah, I think we started with Cheers, where you'd hear Ted Danson before the show say, Cheers was filmed before a live studio. And they'd say it because because Gilligan's Island and, and Petticoat Junction. Right. Really. <laughs> and, right. And you'd hear the same laughs on every show all the time, totally canned. And it, it, it ruined, uh, I th- that was the beginning of the end of the innocence, uh, I think. I think, though, that there was something about all of the uh, shows that, uh, even going back to All in the Family, um, you just felt like you were at a uh, a stage you know, you were watching a play yeah. in New York or Broadway and you having that experience in your life, uh, it must have been an, an easier segue to to perform for audiences on uh, television, right? Yeah, for sure. All four of us on Will & Grace were, were stage babies. Uh, and, we, and the thing is, we also weren't babies. Like we, the, the, the Friends cast was virtually all 22 and 23 when they started. You know, we were, with the exception of Sean, we were in our 30s. So... Um, we'd been around longer. We'd done a lot of theater. Um, Megan had been on Broadway a couple of times. And uh, we just, playing to an audience was, I, I, we missed it when we didn't do it. Uh, we, once in a while, we'd have to shoot a scene on the New York set, you know, the, this, the uh, outdoor New York set that all the shows used. And as fun as that was to go on location for two hours in the afternoon, it was weird to play those characters without without an audience yeah. they kind of only existed on stage 17 amazing don't go away we'll have more with eric mccormick in just a moment September has traditionally marked the beginning of a new fall TV season. On CTV, you can get into it starting September 19th as a mix of new and returning shows join their lineup. Among the new dramas is The Rookie Feds, which begins September 27th. You know The Rookie starring Nathan Fillion? Well, this is a new extension of that franchise with one of my favorites, Nisi Nash, starring as a late-in-life FBI recruit. East New York, which begins October 2nd, stars Amanda Warren as a new police squad boss with the great Jimmy Smiths in support. 
In Alaska Daily stars Hillary Swank as a reporter looking to make a fresh start at a northern newspaper. It begins October 6. Returning favorites include last season's hottest rookie, the cleaning lady, who begins mopping up on September 19th. The Rookie and La Brea both return at the end of September, with The Good Doctor scrubbing up October 3rd. And good old Grey's Anatomy is also back for a 97th season, October 6th. Don't miss the return of Canadian Originals Children Ruin Everything, September 19th, plus award-winning hospital drama Transplant, September 23rd. See them all on CTV or stream them on demand at ctv.ca and the CTV app. Speaking, of course, with Eric McCormick, and uh, we're talking about a lot of things. We're just talking about live studio audiences and um, that tradition in television, especially with sitcoms. Um, but when again, when uh, we uh, you gave this talk in Toronto uh, earlier this year, uh, you brought up the exciting news that you were working on uh, a new New York production of a play. Uh, just how is that going? What's what? What's the news? What's the update on that? Well, it's, I mean, I, I did Broadway 20 years ago and then again 10 years ago. So I'm due. Every 10 years, I, I want to get back to New York. And um, and you were in the Music Man, uh, the earlier yeah, show, I guess, right? 2001 and then 2012 was called The Best Man, which was a revival of a Gore Vidal play with an unbelievable uh, cast. James Earl Jones and Angela Lansbury and Michael McKeon and John Larroquette. Wow. It was, it was pretty uh, astounding. Candace Bergen, uh, Carrie Butler. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm dying to get back. Particularly now that my kid is off to college, I, I really would love to get back to the stage. And I've been connected for about a year to uh, a, the first ever stage version, not musical, but just straight play of The War of the Roses. Right. Uh, the, the Michael Douglas. Yeah. Film. Kathleen and, Turner. Uh, Kathleen Turner. And... This uh, is something I'm really, really praying happens. Uh, the producers have the money. J- Jason Alexander is directing. Wow. Um, Fred uh, Alfred Molina is attached uh, in the Danny DeVito part. Uh, we've done readings. Um, the producers have the money. We have most everything. What we d- lack, two things. One, we have a budget that's a little too big, and they're trying to bring that down. But two, it's just very, it's a competitive landscape for theaters. Huh. Uh, something I didn't even think about. As, as much as I've gone to New York, as much as I love Broadway, I hadn't done the math that there's really only about 40 Broadway theaters, um, 20 of them will never be available because Wicked will run forever or something. <laughs> they're just not available. They're, they're full time. Yeah. Um, and the other, there's another 10 that are strictly musical houses. They're too big for any straight play. So you're, you've got a whole bunch of straight plays, new plays, plays from London competing for about 10 theaters. And yeah. it's, it's a strange thing. So we, I'm really hoping that the fall of next year or possibly the winter of 24, uh, we can get this going. It's, it's a really funny, uh, a dark script. And I, I think it would be, uh, I think it'd be great. That interesting. Is it partially too that, uh, with COVID, 
that uh, now that things are easing and restrictions are being lifted, that the lid is off all of these ideas to get plays onto Broadway, and you're now yeah. tum- tumbling with three years' worth of productions, right? That's right. So, so there's all of that. And then the ironic other side of it, which is that there's a lot of people that didn't make enough money during COVID, so they can't afford to travel with the family to Broadway. Broadway costs more than it ever has. Mm. So it's a bigger risk, even though we're all desperately trying to get on top of each other to get a, a theater space. Those theater owners have to choose wisely because they can't afford a, a miss. They can't afford to, to, to fail. So it's, uh, there's, there's less of, this, of a sense of adventure. It's a little more cutthroat uh, on both sides. So, and audiences are not stampeding back to everything. There's a few shows, but, um, it's the last time I went, I saw three shows in two days and they, we were still wearing masks. I don't right. know what that's been lifted, but you know, and there's a lot of people that don't want to do that. And it's like, well, I'll go back to the theater when everything's normal. So it's, it's a strange time, but uh, yeah. I think a lot of us as actors uh, cooped up for two years are like, give me an audience. <laughs> well, is there a chance that, uh, and I don't know the business of this at all, but that you might open at the Royal Alex for a, a run, you know, like that you would have the productions leading up to Broadway and other cities. We've been sort of wondering why that's not the, um, the case. The producers of this show uh, have been involved in a lot of other successful, uh, often Tony-winning shows in the past. So they're and they're New York-based people, and I think for them it's just like, no, nope, we're just going right to Broadway. Uh, I would love. I, Jason and I were talking the other day. Would it be great to do to start in London, where it actually costs right. us for some reason to put up a show initially? Try it out there. If it's a hit, great. We're bringing a hit back to to Broadway and if it's not a hit then nobody has to know so uh, but but I don't think that's part of the plan at the moment it's just an interesting business I don't know but again but I know that uh, Randy Lennox was running CTV up here for a while and he did that bat out of hell play in London oh yeah and that opened there and then uh, was in New York I think briefly and other places but it's uh, it's fascinating really um, so you mentioned Jason Alexander a couple times because he'd be part of your podcast as yeah. well and all these other wonderful people you've worked with you must pinch yourself sometimes you know you came from scarborough you had ate at johnny's hamburgers <laughs> <laughs> you know like what a life uh, eric uh I, do you have time to, to sit and contemplate that uh, ever yes absolutely and, and it comes and goes because you know like i say during will and grace it was we would almost beg sometimes. Could we have a week where there's no guest stars? <laughs> just the four of us. Um, so you get a little, it's an embarrassment of riches. And then to get past that into uh, to the real world a little bit. And God, it was unbelievable the number of people that, not just that I worked with, but they came to work with us. They were nervous because... Uh. Uh, whether it be Elton John or Barry Manilow or, or uh, it was our home. They came to our set. And so we got to be relaxed with them and have fun with them in a way that we wouldn't if we were, you know, if we got a scene or two in one of their movies or something. So right. um, it allowed a level of, of um, connection that I, I still pinch myself over for sure. Uh, and, uh, and then this new sort of group, um, 
is kind of amazing because you get old enough and you realize that it's it's no longer six degrees of separation. Everything is about one degree. Um, what do you have, mean by that? Well, you just you realize that you know I, I don't. I knew Brian Cranston fifteen years ago when we both had sitcoms and we both did an episode of uh, of The Soup, which was a, just a silly yeah. show that Mikhail used to do down here. And he was just, I was, Will and Grace was just ending, or maybe I was, no, I was actually promoting a different show. I was promoting Perception or something, but he was, he was about to start Breaking Bad or they'd only done two seasons or something. So there's those weird places that where our careers intertwine. I was out to dinner the other night. It was uh, a wonderful uh, actor named Spencer Garrett, who's in virtually everything. And, uh, and everyone knows him. His mother was the original um, Wendy and Peter Pan. Wow! You know, so he, he's had a showbiz connection his whole life. But we had uh, we had this dinner for his birthday, and uh, Titus Welliver was there, and uh, yeah. and Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne, and to hear to realize that Fishburne and Stephen Weber and Titus and Spencer go back to. 30 years ago, they were all young men together yeah. running this town and, and how much I sort of, my path almost crossed here and almost it's, it, it, it knocks me out. So it's, it's one thing when you're younger and you're a fan, it's another thing when you're older and you realize <clears throat> that we're all in the same business and, and uh, we all, the one degree of separation is that, uh, Oh, I didn't know you knew that guy. That's, he's like my best friend. You're kidding. And uh, that stuff is always, it's always thrilling. And this idea that you sort of you get to celebrate together, right? I mean, uh, I yeah. remember many years ago uh, interviewing Brian Cranston. He was in Toronto shooting a Christmas movie where he played a big elf or something. And <laughs> he was in some factory in downtown Toronto that was pretending That's to be cool. a studio. And he, um, I show up from TV Guide or The Sun or wherever I was with at the time. And he was just wonderful. He was like, wow, wait till you see the sled. You know, like he, <laughs> he, he walked me through the set and he was so excited because they had all these cool props. And then a few years later, um, he's winning an Emmy and you watch things like that and you get involved to the point where what a wonderful reward for such a deserving person, right? Oh, yeah. And he, he really is just the loveliest, loveliest yeah. guy. So. Yeah. That's well, always nice when you meet your some of your heroes or just actors you haven't had a chance to cross paths with and to discover that they're terrific is um, is always gravy. Pretty cool. We'll be right back with Eric McCormick right after this short message. Get ready for a whole lot of drama coming your way this month on Super Channel. Season two of the HBO Max original documentary reality series, House of Ho, is available now on Super Channel Fuse. House of Ho chronicles the lavish lifestyle, strong family values, and multi-generational clash of the Ho family, a wealthy Vietnamese-American family in Houston who built a multi-million dollar empire. In this unique and wildly entertaining reality series, 
Power struggles and family drama collide as Ben and Hugh, immigrants who proudly achieve the American dream, attempt to control the lives of their adult children, Washington and Judy, who find themselves under constant pressure to live up to their parents' impossible expectations. New episodes air every Sunday with all of season one currently available on demand. Super Channel is available via most cable providers right across Canada, as well as streaming on Amazon Prime video channels and Apple TV+. And we're back with Eric McCormick. So let me get a few dates straight. So you have the podcast new in the new year. You're, you're thinking? I think so. We're gonna we're doing uh, another three or four. So we'll have about ten in in the can before we go to uh, before we go to whatever you do. What, what what do podcasts do? I guess they air or they appear. They're not. I broadcast. never know. I always say it's premiering, but um, it's premiering on Monday. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, there's no other dates at the moment. Broadway is still a ways away, and I, I'm developing a few things that uh, may or may not ever happen. So it's uh, into but a different period now. Slasher, though, is there a date for that to premiere? I think you know? Slasher is April. Okay, that's a Shaftesbury production, right? It is, yes. And yeah. uh, but I'll certainly be um, shouting from the rooftops when it airs because uh, I I loved it. I had such a great time. I loved the cast, and uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, now, three questions about television to wrap oh, yeah. things up. First of all, what are you watching? What are you binging? Is there something that you just can't miss these days? Um, I, I'm way out of it because the summer uh, between travel and and work, and then we spend a lot of time in uh, Vancouver in August where I don't watch much TV. I'm just out in the world. But Good for you. Uh, but what I've been binging this week, and I will finish tonight, is uh, Ethan Hawke's awesome documentary series about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. I want to see this, and I don't know if it's anywhere in Canada yet. I know it's. I, it's. I think it's Netflix here, but I'm okay. Well, I'll but, check it. Um, yeah. It may not be. It may be Apple, but um, it's. I think it's six, seven episodes. It's just fantastic. It's a really amazing approach to documentary. It's not a traditional form. Uh, and I, I won't even explain why you'll just, you'll see in the first episode, but it's, he, he's like a sleuth. It's like, I cannot, I have to, wow. the truth of these two amazing, it's called the last movie stars. And, and yeah. in many ways they are, I didn't realize they did 16 films together. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's been really great. I recommend that. I really want to see that. The big documentaries there now this month in Canada are, um, all about Team Canada from the Summit series. Oh, right. uh, you were just a, a child. Uh, do you have any memory of that uh, growing up? The Team Canada in nineteen seventy two. Not really. I, yeah, I before your time, hockey was a thing that my parents would say. Why don't you get out? The kids are playing hockey. Why don't you get outside and play some hockey? <laughs> and I would scream. There's a reason I was thrown out of the country. Well, it, it seems to have worked out. Uh, now, the next question of the three is um, uh, the show that influenced you when you were a youngster. What was your favorite kids show? Was there a show that you used to run home from school to watch? Well, the, obviously, that I, we've talked about Mr. Dressup as a little kid show, but yeah. the show that I would run home to watch that was the next big influence on me was Get Smart. Wow. Amazing. Uh, 
for sure. In so many ways. Uh, funny show. Funny show, you know, silly, but still grown up humor. I, I didn't, a lot of the jokes, you know, there was Mel Brooks created the show. with yeah. It's, it's that kind of humor. Uh, and, but it was also about spies and my, my buddy Bill, who's my best friend in uh, fourth grade, fifth grade, we would come home, watch the show every day, whatever time it was on, and then play. <laughs> we, we had uh, control agents' numbers, and we would run around his house or his backyard and, and do, do whatever the plot was from that episode. It was huge. Who got to play Larrabee? You know, popping out of a garbage can. Yes. Or, uh, uh, or for, I think it was for, uh, 44 was the agent that was always stuck in cigarette machines. <laughs> I loved uh, let, let, that's right, Larrabee. With that, Larrabee was like the uh, the, the chief's um, secretary or something. Something like that, yeah. Yes, I, yeah. and I used to, I got to meet Don years later, and it was such a huge thing for me with Barbara Felton. I met them together. Oh, my God, really? Where was this? Uh, it was at an NBC's 75th anniversary. Wow. So, oh. of course, yeah, I, I don't think about it. It was just on the Channel 7 from Buffalo or whatever. I didn't know where I saw it. But to realize that it was an NBC show yeah. and that he won the same award that I would win uh, 40, 30 years later is uh, still something that blows my, my mind. Outstanding uh, performance by a lead actor in a comedy. Um, that's, yeah. that's you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I interviewed Don Adams. He was in Canada doing a show yeah. called Check It Out. Check uh, it out. Yeah, grocer, grocer, you know. Like, kind of like hanging in, kind of in the same. Kind of like you were talking about hanging in earlier. Yeah. And I got, uh, I drew the straw to go interview him. I was quite excited to interview Don Adams. So I went downtown and he wore around his neck. And, you know, he's, he's older at this point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he had a gold Emmy dangling from the chain around his neck in, in case I missed the fact that he was a three-time Emmy winner for playing uh, Agent uh, 86. That show was shot originally in front of a studio audience uh, and um, uh, I talked to yeah. Dinah Christ- Dina Christie was the co-star. Oh, oh, check it out. Oh, I thought you meant uh, Get Smart, which was no. not... No, but, no, no. Uh, well, Dinah Christie, yes. That's another another show for my adolescence was Party Game. Oh, the best. I never missed it. But Oops. Dinah Christie told me that um, they had to switch to a different format for season two uh, because Don just didn't yeah, remember his lines. No, it's uh, <laughs> that's, that's a real thing. And, and and we had the occasional guest star in Will and Grace that was like, oh, oh, I have to, you know, um, it would have been terrifying. Debbie Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, God bless her, was you know was uh, just fantastic as Grace's mother. But yeah. eventually, she needed some big old cue cards. Wow! She yeah. made them herself. She knew exactly how she needed them. And she, on show day, she with a big magic marker, we'd watch Debbie Reynolds on her hands and knees. Wow! Cue cards. It was astounding. What a trooper! Good yeah. for her. Uh, finally, your all-time favorite TV theme song. This is, I had to think about this one because um, uh, I go to my favorite shows, right? So so a lot of my favorite shows didn't have theme songs with lyrics. Right. It's great. I love the Get Smart theme. I still have that in my head. I love the Will and Grace theme. I, the, yeah, yeah. In terms of a, a theme song that is a song that has a lyric, hmm, well, then I go to all of the family, uh, cheers. But I think 
to this day, the most fun, if I hear it in the car, the most fun theme song is Laverne and Shirley. Wow. Okay. And, and, speak- and it was a, 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 the artist was named Cindy Greco or Cindy Rico. I think she actually had a hit with it, you know, the second season or whatever. Yeah. Fuller, obviously longer version. But when it comes on on like the 70s station or something, it's, it's as exciting as any other song. I love it. I drive a little faster. <laughs> very loud. Um, it's great. So I have you, to, I'm going to go with that one today. Can you treat us with a, a, a bit of the lyric? Can you oh, remember? Oh, I'm, um, I have to find a key that makes sense. Nothing's going to turn us back now. Straight ahead and on the track now. You're going to make our dreams come true. Something like that. And it's, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, the, 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 the bridge goes that sort of there's nothing we won't try never heard the word impossible I just it's so much fun that's fantastic <laughs> Eric thank you um, I hope I don't have to pay rights for that um, but you probably uh, will have to come <laughs> uh, she deserves it whoever yeah but uh, that was great listen congratulations on all the things you're doing and on your son heading off to university and uh, everything else that's going Thanks, on Bill. it's a, always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I'm looking forward to the podcast and uh, the Murdoch episode and Slasher and everything else you got going on so thank Thanks, you again Bill. for doing nice this nice chatting with you we'll, you we'll too again. thanks a lot Eric bye Eric McCormick has sung on stage, screen, and in sports arenas, so it's great to hear him sing a TV theme song right here on this podcast. His choice for his favorite TV theme is the great call-to-action anthem from Laverne and Shirley. It's called Making Our Dreams Come True, and it was written by composer Charles Fox and lyricist Norman Gimbel. The duo had previously written the Happy Days theme for executive producer Gary Marshall. They also wrote the theme to Love American Style, and Gimbel had a hit earlier with The Girl from Ipanema. The two would go on to write the theme to The Love Boat, so these guys wrote a whole lot of stuff that is still stuck in your head if you were around in the 70s. Cindy Greco was the lead singer on Making Our Dreams Come True, with background vocals from the Ron Hicklin Singers. These guys chimed in on everything from the Flintstones theme to McDonald's commercial jingles such as You Deserve a Break Today. There also is a Canadian connection to the Laverne and Shirley theme. Mega producer David Foster is listed as the piano player on the original recording session. Thanks, as always, to Phil Hong for producing this podcast. I'd also like to single out Katie Brio for designing the main Brio TV site. I'm grateful as well to all the amazing publicists for arranging these interviews. Thanks to our sponsors, and yes, thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the word with a like or a review. And remember, you can always catch up on TV news and reviews daily at Brio.tv. I'm Bill Brio. Thanks for listening.